RPC Radio. Hello and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax brought to you by RPC. My name is Alexis Armitage and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. I'm delighted to be joined today by two guests, Ruth Hancock, who is the CEO of Octopus Money, which is on a mission to give every employee access to help with their money from a real person. And we also have Ali Poulton, who is a practicing financial coach and who now works as a head coach to manage, train and mentor other coaches across the Octopus Money team. So welcome to Taxing Matters, both of you, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited about the topic that we're going to be discussing, which is financial health, well-being and confidence. I think this is a really hot topic for a lot of people and businesses at the moment. When I look back to when I started my career in law, now almost 10 years ago, this was not a topic that was on the agenda at all, certainly not at the junior level, but everyone seems to be talking about it now. And when you think about it, it seems crazy that we weren't talking about it before now. Turning to introductions then, welcome Ruth. Thank you for having me. What is it that Octopus Money wants to achieve and what are its aims? Thanks very much. So Octopus Money is on a mission and I don't use that word lightly. We really think that everyone in the UK deserves help with their money. Because when we look at how people feel about their money, we know that it's a huge contributor to stress. It's a huge contributor to people feeling out of control. And yet it's something we have to deal with day in, day out. We've also learned, though, that in order to help people with that, they need to talk to someone. They need to have someone who will listen to their life goals, to their hopes and dreams and work through what money means to them in a conversation So in Octopus Money, we partner with workplaces to provide every employee within a workplace access to exactly that. And so what's the problem here? What are we looking at? What do we mean when we say financial health, well-being and confidence? It's very easy to say financial confidence is poor. It's a fact. But what does that really mean? What that means is that when we ask people, do you feel capable of managing your money in the short and long term? The majority of people say no. When I ask people in Octopus Investments, which is the asset management business I used to run, almost a thousand people, have you ever not been able to concentrate on work because you're so worried about money? About 80% of people said yes. Those are just two examples of why and how we know that financial confidence is a problem. And we also know that we're living in a tough economic period. Cost of living may be on the front page of the paper a little less. That's not because the problem's gone away. In fact, I'd argue it's the opposite. I'd argue that having lived through a cost of living crisis for the last year, now is the point where people are getting to crunch point. And that's because we've still got half a million people who are going to remortgage this year. Rents are forecast to go up by 20%. We see about a third of people thinking about reducing or stopping their pension contributions, leaving them thousands and thousands of pounds worse off in the long run. So this problem is particularly acute right now. And it's exacerbated by the fact 
that people don't have anywhere to go for help. So when I ask people, who do you get to help you? They might have a parent, they might have a friend who works in financial services, but no one consistently has an answer to that question. It's particularly true in professional services. Really interesting theme amongst people working in professional services. And I've worked in consultancy, so I've definitely felt this myself. You feel like you have to be a bit of a superhero. You're delivering to clients, you're delivering advice. You feel like you have to show up knowing what you're doing. So when you say to people, do you admit that money is something you struggle with? Most people find it really hard to admit that. Much like we know in mental health, if you don't talk about it, problems can get worse. It's the same with money. We think it's really important, particularly in professional services, that people have somewhere confidential that they can go to to talk about it. So what can we do about it then? Money is a very personal topic. Number one, I think what people want is a safe space. People need to be able to have a conversation where it's okay to say, I don't understand my pension. I didn't even know that a pension was an investment. I don't understand how the tax works. Now, that's probably less true of people listening to this podcast than in other cases. But there will still be people who don't know the details of how tax relief on a pension works. Why should you? We don't get taught this stuff in schools. But critically, actually, most people, when it comes to their money, also want someone who will listen because the reason people bury their head in the sand is because they feel like no one cares. What we do is we match someone with a financial coach who is predominantly there to listen and then to show up as an expert and say, here are some of the things you could do. We find that after having sessions with a coach, people do take actions. About 25% of our customers leave a session and actually increase their pension contributions because they understand the impact that that's going to have on their future life. The vast majority leave and say, I feel more confident. 85% say, I feel more on track for the financial future that I want. Interestingly, when you look at it in a workplace context, 68% of people also say, I can see myself staying at my current company longer because now I understand how to make my salary and benefits work for me and my financial goals, which is pretty powerful, I think. That's really, really interesting. So, Ali, what are some of the things people can do about their own finances? I don't think one podcast is going to be enough time to work through all the ways that you can transform your finances. But I can give you a few steps to start along the journey. When thinking about money, I always start off by talking about personal values and not facts and figures. So what's important in your life? Is it family? Is it personal growth? Is it knowledge? Is it financial freedom? I never would tell you what to spend your money on. But by looking at your values first, you will create an awareness of what motivates you and demotivates you to save or spend. These values will be your guiding compass when you need to make decisions around your finances. But in today's times of high interest and inflation still above 5%, What is it that you can literally do to look after your money better? So I've got four main steps. The first one would be to become aware of your spending habits and to create a budget. Now, budgeting is normally a word that evokes either a sense of fear 
or dread or complete boredom in most people. But I promise you that once you've set something up, it will help you to get to a real place of financial confidence. How do you do this? I'm absolutely positive that people in accountancy and tax professionals are quite well versed in the use of spreadsheets. But I'm also well aware that people who work in finance often look after everybody else's finances first and deal with their own last, if at all. So taking that time, creating a spreadsheet of all your spending is a really good starting point. Ideally, this would cover the whole year so that you can see the impact of the month to month expenses that add up over time. But if you don't want to go to the effort of creating one, there are a number of apps that you could use to help you with this, just so that you get somewhere that you can see all the incomings and all the outgoings and you get a good sense of where your money's going. Once you've created that spreadsheet, you could have a look at those spending habits. And I want you to go back over the last three months. I want you to find three things that you've spent money on that didn't make you happy. Become aware of the circumstances of what caused you to spend that money and put a measure in place that may stop you from doing that again in the future. Then I want you to think about the things that have made you happy that you've spent your money on. If you're reaching the end of the month and there's not much left over, Instead of thinking, what do I need to cut from my life? I want you to think, what can I spend more on on the things that make me happy? That might ultimately mean cutting back other areas, but you'll start with cutting the things that make you less happy. Once you've decided what's staying, then I want you to set some limits per month and stick to them. Promise yourself that you'll only spend X amount on one thing this month and stop when you reach that limit. If you're nearing the end of the month and are tempted, just think, I mean, what's another few days until the next month to hold out? You can do it. So that's budgeting. Number two step is to switch the way you filter your money. Most people get paid. They spend, spend, spend throughout the month. And if there's anything left over, then they might save that. I want you to reverse that. Save straight away by setting up automatic saving pots and then live off what's left. Finding that balance can be tricky, especially if there's not much left at the end of every month. That's why thinking about your values and what's more important to you will help you choose what to keep and what can go. Should you focus on that future goal and give up something now or can you delay that future goal in order to spend more now? My third step is to ensure that you have an emergency fund in place. You never know what life will throw at you. Having the right insurances in place will help for some circumstances, but having a backup fund of at least three months worth of either bills or ideally net pay will help give that buffer for something like a job change or the boiler breaking, those emergencies that inevitably pop up. Save it somewhere out of sight, out of mind, and just know that it's there for when things go wrong. Step four is to maximise those tax-free savings. So if you're in the fortunate position to have some savings, then there's only a certain amount of interest that you can earn before you have to start paying some to the taxman. If you're a lower rate taxpayer, that's £1,000. But for higher rate taxpayers, it's £500. If you can, start saving into your ISA allowance each year and protect that interest that's earned. Over the different types of ISAs, you can save up to £20,000 a year. Last thing, one question that we often get asked is whether you should put money into savings or whether you should invest it. So as a general rule, if you're saving for a goal that's within the next five years, we recommend that you keep this money in cash and in a savings account. For those short-term savings like annual holidays or Christmas, which is a biggie in my house, then having a bank account which allows you to have pots is a lifesaver. Think about how much you want to have saved. And if it's an annual amount, then just divide that by 12 and start saving that amount each month. For something that's at least a year away, you may get a higher rate 
um, if you're willing to lock that money away. So think about those fixed rate saver accounts. They could be a good option for you. If your goal is longer than five years away, but before retirement, then you should definitely consider investing in a globally diversified portfolio and use your ISA allowance for this if you can. If your goal is to retire, then your pension is the most tax efficient way to save for that retirement age. So don't forget, though, that that money is locked away until that time. So ideally, ensure that all your goals are thought through and have money allocated to them before locking it away. That's just a few ideas to help you get started. If those feel quite obvious, that's really great. My next question to you would be, what's the next step for you? Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ali. There's some really useful stuff there. And I personally will definitely be listening back to this after we've done this podcast to make sure I'm doing all of those things. So Ruth, how can we support our colleagues and clients to get to grips with money? So, you know, the real eye opener for me was when I started to understand that people feel the same way about finance as they do about health. What most people want is an expert like Ali to validate their hypothesis. We've all suffered from an illness and gone straight to Google and then rapidly realized that self-diagnosing on Google is probably not the answer to a health concern. Money is the same. People want help from an expert and they want someone who is going to hold them to account against habits. The other interesting analogy with health is that with your finances, prevention is much better than cure. I often tell a story that I happened to meet an MP and spoke to her about the topic of money. And she told me a story that someone had arrived in her constituency office with two sackfuls of unopened post, having just been declared bankrupt. I hope that no one will get to that stage. But if that person had had the confidence to open that first piece of post, they would have not got to that situation of being made bankrupt because they would have been able to deal with some of those debts and some of those concerns in a much more measured way. The principle, though, is true for everyone, which is don't start to look at this when you're in money crisis or when you're really worried about whether you can meet your financial goals. Think about this as something you should be able to plan into the future for rather than think about it when you need a cure. The final thing is just to recognise that there is a difference between education, coaching and advice. For those of you that aren't familiar with the financial advice industry, for people who have high investable assets, many of them have phenomenal relationships with a financial advisor. What we do at Octopus Money, though, is make sure that everyone, regardless of wealth levels and regardless of life stage, can get access to that same support. We do it through coaching, who are also experts, but the regulatory framework is slightly different. And it means that we can make it affordable to people, regardless of wealth levels. And what both of those relationships do is they get to grips with your personal situation, which is what most people feel they need in order to take action. If you feel confident enough to self-educate and make your own plans, there are huge amounts of resources out there. There's no shortage of education and advice online. What we find, though, is that most people either don't have the time, don't have the appetite, or simply don't have the headspace to engage with that. But if you are relatively self-directed, I'd really encourage you to use some of those resources because they'll often get you to the same place, but you really need to put the effort in yourself, which for many people, is just not an option in a busy life. We recommend that people do engage with a person to talk about their money and recognize that doing that early, particularly early in your career, will have a disproportionate impact 
on how able you are to meet your financial goals in the medium and long term. Thank you. Yeah, I think that just having that guide and that coach alongside you, as you say, having somebody to actually prompt you and remind you to do it because we have such busy lives. I think it sounds like a great idea. Ali, do you have anything to add to that? One thing I would add to that is having that accountability partner. The number of clients that I've had working with me and the night before they've gone, oh no, I have my meeting with Ali tomorrow and they've gone off and done the jobs, which without that meeting prompt, they'd have probably just put on the back burner and had it sitting on the fridge for another week or two. Having that accountability is really key to getting people to take action. Yeah, I suppose we should really treat a lot of things in our personal life the way we do at work, where we have these to-do lists and we actually make sure we do them. But with little time, they can often get left by the wayside. I think it's a really good idea. Just thinking about this whole issue, how long has this financial health, well-being and confidence been on the agenda for businesses? Why are we suddenly and finally talking about this now, Ruth? I see a couple of themes. One is obviously cost of living. When I talk to people who lead businesses, they can see that they have employees in stressful situations and want to be able to help them with them because they care about those employees' well-being. They see a productivity impact. And actually, critically, they see lots of people looking for new jobs purely because they think they need to earn more salary. So it's a way for employers to change that conversation with employees and help them understand how they can reach financial goals and reduce some of that financial stress without necessarily having to change jobs and without the employer having a magic money tree that can give everyone a 10% pay rise every year is just not feasible in this economic environment. That's one thing. The second thing is the extent to which the pension landscape has changed. One of the things that scares me most is that I think many people look at their parents and think, oh, my parents are doing all right in retirement. My mum was a teacher and she has a final salary pension. So while she's never been anything close to wealthy, she's okay in retirement. She can make ends meet. If I would have the same career as my mum did and make exactly the same contributions as she did, I would not be okay in retirement because actually beyond the public sector, pension landscape has shifted from pension schemes, guaranteeing you an income in retirement, to it being all about the contributions you make. And I think that seismic shift in the public psyche has almost gone a little unnoticed. Unfortunately, we're heading for a pensions crisis where people live longer in retirement, want to do all of the brilliant things that they haven't had time to do when they're working hard, and yet actually are facing a period of their lives in which they're going to feel very financially constrained. And I think people are just waking up to that. So I think that helping people understand what they need to do differently has come higher up the agenda, and rightly so, I would say. I think the third piece is I see employers going through waves of what feels most important in how they support their employees. And I actually think this is the next wave. So I think historically, employers have played a part in physical health. I think more recently and rightly, employers have played a part in mental health. And I think financial health, not only as a contributor to mental health, but as a topic in itself, is the next place in which employers think, really, if I want a healthy workforce who feel that I care about them, who want to stay with me in the long term, I've got to be engaged with this topic. And I think this is the next wave of topics at the top of the agenda 
for employers and that's why we're talking about it a lot more now. Yeah, it certainly feels like that. Everything I see on LinkedIn at the moment is all about this topic. Ali, do you have anything to add to that? I think it's really key for employees to be seeing companies that are bringing excellent benefits to them. And I think they're being drawn to those jobs over other jobs because of these benefits. Looking after their employees' well-being and financial well-being is just another step of, actually, that's the company that I want to work for versus that one that may even pay slightly more. It's looking at the overall picture of that culture in the workplace and what that company stands for. It's part of the whole benefits package, isn't it, that employers offer to their employees. So as you say, Ali, it's a way of attracting the best talent, really. And keeping them. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. At Octopus, we became a B Corp a couple of years ago because we felt that it was important to state that we cared about all of our stakeholders, um, not just shareholders. And actually, the difference that's really made is that when people look at us as an employer, they think about us differently. They understand that we're a mission-driven business. They understand that we care about employees as much as we do our shareholders. So as an example of exactly that point that Ali made, I think that's a really good one. It sounds like this is something that all businesses and companies should be doing or should have at the top of their agenda. Do you feel like a lot of them are, or do you feel like there's still a long way to go? I think there's still a long way to go. I think employers are starting to think about the topic and they're starting to understand that it's important for their employees. I think the shift we've got to make is twofold. It's employers recognising in their hearts that if they care about this topic, they will have happier, more engaged, more productive employees, and that will build a better business. And I think as soon as people actually understand that this will help them build a better, more profitable business, then it gets even further up the agenda. So that's step number one. Step number two that I personally would like to see is for employers to understand that no benefit is a tick box exercise. Providing a login to an educational platform may not improve financial resilience to the extent you want to. It will for very self-directed employees. And this is not a one-size-fits-all industry. You will find that different employees have different needs. But I personally believe that the majority of people need something that's a bit deeper than that, just as they do with mental health, actually. I think there's a lot of parallels. And I think that employers that really understand that difference and understand the complexity of the challenge they're facing will actually have the biggest impact. And I think we're just at the beginning of that wave, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you said about it being quite an individual tailored process is quite true, because I think a lot of it is probably wrapped up in people's individual psychology and their money journey and how they got to where they are now, beliefs they have around money and why they have them that's driving their current behaviour today. So it probably does need to be on an individual level. What has been some of the feedback that you've had so far about this? Is this something they want? Are they finding it helpful? I think they are. The first thing I often talk about is that when we go into a workplace, on average, 40% of people sign up for a session. And that just shows you the extent of the unmet need. 
when we launched in a workplace, actually with really phenomenal senior sponsorship from a leader who really believed in the topic the other day, we got 95% of people sign up for a session. So that to me is if you say to me, people have got their finances in order, I can tell you unequivocally they don't. Ali, I'm sure you've got some brilliant examples of feedback you've had as you've coached individuals. Definitely. I think when people come into the sessions, when their first session, they're very nervous, they're very unsure, they're very unconfident. Then you work with them throughout the year and you just see that confidence level changing and they start making the decisions. They start thinking about things and going off and doing their research. And you know that they're succeeding when they come back to you and they say, I've looked at this and I've looked at that. And it becomes a really engaging topic. I think it's really key that when they start making those changes in their lives and they can see that having an impact on their future, that's really exciting for both us as the coaches and for them as the client. Definitely. I'm always really interested in people's personal stories. So why are you both in this area? What motivates you personally about this area? Should we go to Ruth first? For me, it's twofold, actually. One is very personal and one is more professional. So if I start with the professional, I've over the last 10 years of my career, worked in retail banking. So I started a challenger bank and then I've worked in asset management, working a lot with financial advisors. And what I've seen is that what retail banks do brilliantly is they digitize and they lower costs to serve in a commercial sense. But what they're increasingly struggling with is engagement, where in the financial advice industry, engagement is phenomenal. Most people have a very, very strong relationship with their financial advisor, but you only get access to that service if you're amongst the most wealthy in our society. So I saw an opportunity to bring those two things together, to take some of the learnings from retail banking and digitization and lowering cost to serve and automation with the engagement you see in the financial advice industry. So that's probably the first reason. The second, as it so often is, is much more personal, which is, as I was growing up, I was in a single parent family with a mum who worked full time. She was a teacher, but I think our household income never exceeded £24,000. And what I really remember from my childhood was my mum being terrified that the washing machine would break. Sounds like a weird thing to be terrified of, but it was always the thing that came up in our household that she couldn't understand how as a working mum, she would just sort of get through the week without a washing machine. And it wasn't until I was a bit older that I realised it's because she didn't have the emergency fund to be able to fix the washing machine if it broke. And so the stress that that brought her as a working mother was really high for something that in the grand scheme of things feels quite minor. But I hear so many of those stories when it comes to money that we're carrying this baggage around as a society. And I think for way too long, we've left people to struggle on their own. And I think it's time that we don't have to do that anymore. Absolutely. I totally agree. Just to completely identify with your mum there, I have two young children who are four and two, and I can't imagine getting through a few days without a washing machine. So I can totally identify with that. And what about you, Ali? I started at Octopus Money as one of our financial coaches back in 2021, having run my own coaching business for the previous few years. So my journey into the financial world started when I lost my clients due to lockdown as I was working with a lot of creatives who couldn't also work in lockdown. So at that point, I started really looking into my family's finances and realized that we weren't in a position to retire comfortably at the rate we were going, which was quite scary for us. So I decided to investigate what needed to be done to transform my family's future. From all that work, what I found 
was not only a way to help my family, but a career change because I really enjoyed the financial side of setting goals and targets. I thought it would be really great if I could incorporate it into my own coaching business. Before I started that, though, my sister sent me an article about Octopus Money and the Financial Times. And I looked at that company and I thought, that's the company that I want to work for. I really love our ethos and the way that the whole company thinks. So I applied, I got in. And then this time last year, after doing the coaching for 18 months, I was brought into the HQ team to run my own pod of our coaches and help them build their businesses as I had done with my own. So I'm there to support them and mentor them and help them transform their clients' lives. Brilliant. Thank you. If I was an employee of a firm, which I am, two of the concerns that I would have, the topic is very taboo. Do we want to talk about this with our other employees listening or colleagues or employers as well? So how do you manage that? And also confidentiality. How does that work? I assume that nothing you say gets passed back to the employer. No, that's exactly right. We talked earlier about a safe space, and that really is the most important thing. So every conversation that people have with a financial coach is confidential, We think that it's actually very valuable, therefore, for firms, even when they're in financial services themselves, to work with a third party. I've certainly spoken to banks and other advice firms that advise clients about why can't we do this ourselves? And yet when they try to, their employees simply don't sign up because they're worried about that confidentiality. So that's a really important pillar of what we do. What we will do is look across the themes of an organisation, though, And say we've noticed that amongst your employees, these things are particularly worrying them or these parts of your benefits package actually aren't valued at all. And that's how we create a bit of a virtuous circle, actually, to improve benefits for employees, as well as maintaining that really strict confidentiality. But it does create quite a nice feedback loop with people still having that incredibly important safe space yeah of course it's important to have that feedback loop as you say because a lot of employees wouldn't want to necessarily feed that back if it's done across the board and there isn't any way of identifying individual people i think that's absolutely fine and that's actually probably what employees would want well thank you so much ruth and ali we have certainly learned a great deal of today and i suspect we are likely to hear a lot more about it as time goes on unfortunately that's all we've got time for in this month's episode thank you again to ruth and ali for today's podcast you can contact ruth at ruth at octopusmoney.com and ali at ali.pilton at octopusmoney.com as ever a big thank you goes to insider productions and andrew waterson for the production music and sound editing of this episode if you like taxi matters why not try rpc's other podcast offering insurance covered which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry hosted by the brilliant peter mansfield and available on apple podcasts spotify and our website If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again soon.